0: Hello everyone and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding
1: platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has
0: made us more informed, grateful and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look,
1: you will be too. Today we're gonna be talking with Dr. Ellen Jefferson, the president and CEO of American Pets Alive, as well as Austin Pets Alive, which is not your average animal shelter. They work to pioneer innovative life-saving programs designated to saving the animals most at risk of euthanasia. We love, love, love to learn about new programs and the moves that shelters make toward bettering animal lives. So we were so excited to bring Dr. Jefferson on to talk about the wonderful things they're doing to improve Austin and animal welfare efforts as a whole. If you like this episode, be sure to click that subscribe button to listen in on similar stories. You're so ready for this and we know you are too, so let's get started.
0: Hi there, Dr. Jefferson. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: As are we. I feel like there's so much to get into. So, just on a personal note, we always like to ask because I feel like it may surprise people in a lot of cases it might not be the most straight path directly to animal welfare in a lot of cases. So I'm wondering if you could tell us, were you just like the biggest animal lover as a kid and growing up? Did you have a lot of animals at home?
2: Yes, I did. Actually, I wanted to be around animals my whole life. And I lived in a house where my parents and my family was mostly allergic to animals. So I didn't actually have a lot of dogs and cats. We had one dog, a Schnauzer that died when I was 12. But we, I had tons of other animals like parakeets and hermit crabs and rabbits and hamsters and gerbils and fish and everything that I could get my hands on, we had. And I loved pets a lot. And I wanted to be a vet from the earliest time that I can remember. I really wanted to do something that would be around animals and for animals and to help them. And at the time, you know, this was back in the 70s and 80s, I didn't think there was any, anything else that, that would allow me to do that other than being a vet. And so I had my eyes set on becoming a veterinarian from like 10 years old onward, all the way through college, and of course, getting into vet school. And I'm one of those strange ones that knew exactly what they wanted to do right from the beginning.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. That's so inspiring to you. But I mean, I think you did touch on something that's like very interesting where it's like, yeah, there are probably a lot of paths that could have taken you to animals. And you were like, there's probably just being a vet. Yeah. (laughs) So I should probably just go for being around animals 24 hours a day.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, in fact, then shelters weren't really a place where you could have a career and there just weren't that many options. So I really thought it was the only thing. Yeah. I mean, that's
0: so interesting and very ambitious. Sydney here was a vet tech for a little bit. I think that's something that she's well aware of how hard it is to become a veterinarian. Oh,
1: yes. I actually did want to ask, are you, I know it's a little off topic, but I'm always curious in your veterinary practice, are you working on primarily dogs and cats or do you also work with exotics and like farm animals and things like that?
2: Well, I don't practice anymore because I'm running often Pets Alive and I just have no time to actually have hands on in the clinic, which I really regret in a lot of ways because it's so fun and so rewarding to be actually working with the animals and the people. But so when I was at vet school, I purposely tracked towards mixed animals so I could see as many types of animals as I wanted to, as I could, because I knew that I would probably end up in dogs and cats, but I, I really wanted to be able to help any kind of animal. Mm-hmm. And then when I graduated from vet school, I went and worked in a mixed animal practice. We were seeing farm animals and pets. So fun. Yeah, it was really fun. It was in Rocky Mount, Virginia, which is moonshine capital of the world. (laughs) So it it was a place where there was a lot of need and a lot of animals. And I think it actually really helped me a lot to become part of Austin Pets Live and to really look for solutions that weren't the standard, like read them out of a textbook type solutions. But I had a, a brief—I don't know what you call it—but journey through wildlife work, and I really, really love working with wildlife. And I—I I, I was really torn before jumping into Austin Pets Alive full force. I really was trying to decide between jumping into wildlife or jumping into Austin Pets Alive and trying to make our city a no kill city it was a hard decision. But I chose the Austin Pets Alive. I'd still like to do more wildlife eventually.
0: Yeah. Well, so, I mean, going back a little bit then, so how was that transition for you? How did you get moved from really dedicating yourself as a veterinarian over more towards like animal welfare and the nonprofit sector?
2: So I went into vet school thinking, and from the beginning, I wanted to become a veterinarian to help animals. Like I wanted to be able to help animals in any situation and not feel helpless, I guess is the right word, driving by an animal hit by a car or having something bad happen and not knowing what to do about it. While you're in vet school, at least back in the early 90s or mid-90s, the curriculum is really set up around trying to get you to graduate and focus on private practice, focus on building your business up. And it really kind of pushed away from nonprofit work and from helping, not helping, of course, helping is always good, but really being accountable for the degree and keeping, not giving away services, not doing anything that might look like you're able to do it less expensively than your competitor down the street. And so when I left that school, I was sort I call it being brainwashed. And I think it kind of is, I mean, you go through school and you are they're, they're looking for a certain type of philosophy when you graduate. But I left going, not, not even thinking about private, sorry, nonprofit work at all. So I entered into private practice and did that for a year before moving to Austin. And when I first moved here, I didn't know anybody. And I had taken a job at an emergency clinic overnight. And the overnight only three nights a week. So you have plenty of time during the week to do other stuff. And so I started volunteering at the local shelter, which the city of Austin had. And I just had no idea what I was walking into because we didn't learn about it in school at all. We learned, I mean, there was like, One field trip, one day into a shelter, and that's it for our our, our entire curriculum at vet school. Walking into the shelter and offering to help in any way, I didn't expect there to be, I think at that point, they were taking in almost 40,000 animals a year and had an 85% death rate. So the animals that were coming in really didn't need a vet to get them out. There were so many healthy animals that were coming in that didn't have broken legs or problems at all that were still being euthanized. So I ended up doing a lot of stay neuter for them in the shelter, but feeling also feeling pretty helpless. And I can definitely remember a time when like a pivotal moment for me was doing surgeries and having a, they were doing a big remodel. And so the euthanasia room was the same as the surgery room because the vet team was, do, not the vet, but the vet staff was doing the euthanasia. And of course, if you're euthanizing that many animals a day, it's just like all day constantly. And so I was doing my phase and neuters for the animals that they had chosen for adoption, or maybe the public had chosen to be adopted as they walked through the shelter. And then on the table next to me, they were euthanizing animals hand over fist. So it was really, really difficult for me to keep thinking about my one surgery that might take 30 minutes, because I wasn't really fast at that point in my career. And then seeing these animals die minute after minute after minute and feeling like I was not at a place where it didn't feel like I was offering much to to help. And so at that point it was just like a hobby. And so I got more involved in the shelter industry by trying to a couple of the smaller shelters around Austin, but also starting Emancipat Bay Neuter Clinic and trying to prevent the birth from happening so that hopefully fewer animals would end up in the shelter and then hopefully that would translate into fewer having to die at the end of the road at the shelter. So I ended up doing that for nine years in addition to my full-time job. So it was kind of a slow transition over to completely nonprofit work, but I was trying to use my veterinary skills to improve the situation. Just, I mean, it, honestly, I had no idea that we this was occurring. And I bet even though you have social media and you have the internet, I bet there's still a lot of people that have no idea that animals are in such need in shelters.
1: It's so shocking to hear too that in your entirety of a vet school, it wasn't something that was in the curriculum because I, I mean, it's such a big issue. It's, you would think that the two would correlate, that it, it, that it would happen more. So that's really interesting to hear that that's not included as much as it needs to be or as, as much as it should be, at least.
2: Yeah. And there's some schools that are doing more than others. University of Florida has a really strong shelter medicine program. Cornell has a really strong shelter medicine program, UC Davis, University of Wisconsin. And I think others are cropping up, but it's it's not as nearly as many as it should be. And it's certainly not the core curriculum for all of the schools. So yeah, it's kind of surprising. Absolutely.
0: It is interesting to hear too that it's, it sounds like they kind of were prepping you like almost like a business course that they were like, how to establish yourself, how to get your name out there and how to build up your business. And then it was like, end your trade as animals. But that's kind of a, a side note almost. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. I mean, it was a few decades ago now though. So it's like, you cross your fingers and you hope things are different. And there seems to be a trend moving towards like more awareness. And I'm wondering if you can maybe speak to that given where you are now. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but there is certainly a more heightened awareness in the veterinary world about maybe not shelters, but the needs of pet owners who can't afford regular veterinary care. And my Dr. Michael Blackwell with Align Care has done a ton of work on trying to understand a ton of research on gathering data about how exactly how many people are left behind by our current veterinary medical system. And it is a lot of people. And there's something like a billion dollars left on the table every year that veterinarians aren't bringing into their business. They're just ignoring it completely because the cutoff for people who can afford services is much higher than the poverty line. And so there's a lot of people who are making more money than what would be considered the poverty line, but still can't afford full service care, but they could afford something, and that something is not even being addressed at all. They're not capturing that money, and so when we're looking at trying to create this human animal support services model, the medical piece is a really big part of it because we did a, a data dump of 20 pilot shelters that are part of our our big project that we're working on to create to move animal services from the traditional government model of picking up all the loose animals and kind of taking in whatever people bring through the door and then hopefully creating a live outcome for them but in reality all they're legally charged with is disposal of those animals and so that's why most of the government shelters are funded so little they have such little funding is because their main job is disposal hold and disposal and so we're trying to shift that thinking because so archaic and the public does not think that pets should be disposed of in shelters, but yet that's still kind of the underlying model to human animal support services. So move animal services to human animal support services. And what a lot of data like what I just mentioned about Dr. Blackwell's work is showing that people want animals and our the current system of government animal services actually is is creates a separation that doesn't need to be there. And that separation is what's driving the need for disposal, if you will. But if we work on not separating and create that, preserve that human-animal bond, then how do we, it should be better all the way around for the number of animals in shelters and the need for trying to find outcomes for millions of animals entering shelters. And so the veterinary piece with this, we've had about 23 shelters signed up to be part of our HAS project and to count data and help see progress towards the goal of making this shift. And we did a data dump and of 70,000 records, so that 70,000 intake records, we were able to find that within the top five reasons why animals are brought into the shelters, either as strays or as owner surrenders, is because of the health of the animal. That's pretty huge driver out of 200 reasons. It's in the top five. And there's something that desperately needs to be done to connect the dots between the veterinary industry and the shelter industry. And a lot of that just has to do with offering care to more people and kind of removing the judgment that occurs, not the judgment, like sound judgment, but the judginess of who should be allowed to own pets and what kind of care is acceptable because not everybody has the same experiences as veterinarians do or animal welfare workers and shelters do even. But anyway, there's I'm sort of rambling up, but I think that's going to be a big piece of solving for this puzzle.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and we've been lucky enough actually to speak to two shelters that have been part of the Haas program on the podcast. So we spoke with, um, Dallas Animal Services, who we adore. Yeah. And then also Pasco um, Animal Services as well. And it really is amazing how just opening up their process a little bit and innovating a bit and even just the simple solutions they've been able to find that almost feel like common sense, but because there was a process, people just relied on a process and they didn't think to challenge it. It's had such amazing results for them. And I mean, certainly, I think even just in speaking with them, I feel like my takeaway was like, I feel like these people were so inspired and hopeful, whereas so many other organizations we speak with, really, you can sense the compassion fatigue and they just feel like overburdened with all the things that they're trying to balance and do really is astounding. And I love what you're saying too, about just that laundry list, right? So many Rescues have of like this is what makes the right adopter, and this is the type of adopter that that gets to have our animals. Whereas it's like you don't know their lifestyle and who this person could be, and everyone like it doesn't matter if you're in an apartment. For all you know, they're very active and will have the best, most fulfilling lifestyle for an animal. That's incredible.
2: <laughs> yeah, just to kind of connect the dots a little bit with the vet industry, there was a study done. And I can't remember who did it, but there was a study of veterinarians now. And the, the prevailing thought of the younger veterinarians is that something does need to be done by them to solve for this huge gap in veterinary care. And so this old thinking of we shouldn't give away services, we shouldn't, there are people who just shouldn't have animals, the mantra of if you can't afford it, you shouldn't have it. And that is dying out. And so there is a lot of hope out there. But there's also a lot of problems in the veterinary shortage. There's not enough vets to even take care of the people paying all the money. So there's all sorts of things that are wrapped up into this access to care problem. But hopefully, hopefully we can at least solve for some of it through this project.
0: Absolutely. And I know, I mean, I'm part of one of your your teams and it just feels like there are just such inspiring people that are part of Haas and i'm sure there's going to be just so many great things i know things are are starting to get really fired up and underway there <laughs> so super excited to be part of that as things grow and kind of blossom um wondering more towards like what you've done in austin and i mean your effort to kind of make it no kill and to really challenge that horrible euthanasia that you really were like absolutely face to face with i mean it really is you touched on it a little bit of People see it on social media, but I think there is that separation where you feel like it's just a picture and it's almost takes away the emotion of it sometimes when you see it face-to-face, it, it is shocking. So what have you been doing in Austin?
2: We've been doing a lot of things. <laughs> Our programming was created here to, there was 85% euthanasia rate right back in the late 90s when I moved here. And there was a lot of work done. To try to decrease the intake rate from the 90s to the mid 2000s, and so by the time that I was doing spay neuter throughout that period, there was Austin Pets Alive was actually run by a different person, and it was an organization that was really built about advocacy and trying to get the city council to do more for the shelter itself. So they were able to get the shelter budget in doubled. If you can imagine taking in 40,000 animals for, I think it was a one and a half million dollar budget, which is ridiculously small. Like it, it really is only enough to catch and kill. So they were able to double the budget. They were able to start a volunteer program at the city shelter. And they were able to, let's see, get the hours of adoption to be open every day, which a lot of shelters back then and even some now are still open like 3 to 5 p.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And, but they're open all the time for intake, but not for adoption. So those things were big wins. So by the time I joined Austin Pets Alive in 2008, the city was taking in about 25,000 animals and had a 45% live release rate. So better, it was a better situation, but not definitely not good. And what we started with, I had just spent nine years spaying and neutering everything I could get my hands on, and not seeing those numbers change in a more dramatic way over a whole decade of my life, I was sort of surprised by that. And so I wanted to get more involved in the shelter again and see if there was some other way that there could be an intervention in the deaths of all those animals. And so we created a, we were, we had no staff, we had nothing. Austin Pets Alive was still just a very grassroots, no budget organization. We didn't have a building, we didn't have staff, we had no money. And so Because of the connections I had through Amazapet, um, I knew a bunch of people that really wanted to see Austin become a no-kill city. We pulled together people to start brainstorming about how we were going to make this happen. And so the first thing we did is set up a volunteer group that would walk through the shelter. The city director gave us access to walk through the shelter every day. The shelter would close at seven. They would make a euthanasia list at five. And then by 1130 in the morning, all those animals would be gone dead. And so we wanted to look at that list at five every day as soon as they finished making it so that we could try to pull as many as we could out at the very last minute. And then that way, we could actually make a measurable impact on the euthanasia rate for that day, which would translate into that week and then that month and that year. And so that's where we started. And what we found is that an awful lot of animals just needed to go to foster for a few days. They just needed they just needed a little more time and marketing. And that's it. So almost no, no help needed. And then, and we were able to grow by accident. We grew the largest foster program in the country because we were just pounding out on Facebook and Craigslist, just asking people to come and open up their bathroom for two weeks, give us two weeks to get this animal place. And people were coming out of the woodwork to try to help, which was really amazing. And I didn't even know how unique that was at the time because that's all we had. We didn't have anywhere else to put them. And then what we found after we started digging through like the easy ones, then we found that there were large groups of animals that really had no way out of the shelter. If they came in with that specific problem or that or were that type of animal, they were not going to get out of the shelter alive. And so Austin Pets Alive started to create specific programs that would allow every animal that came in with that problem or that whatever the, the label was, then every single one of them would have a pipeline out to a live outcome through a different program than what the city could offer. So those were our Bottle Baby program. There were 2,000 kittens a year coming in and they were never saved because they were less than six weeks old and they'd be put in the kennel and they couldn't wait overnight, so they were just instantly euthanized. And so we created a program, a Bottle Baby ward, to handle all of those coming over, be fed throughout the night, and then move to foster as fast as we could until they were ready to be adopted. The next biggest group, and another big group was the parvo puppies. So, puppies that have parvovirus, there was maybe about 500 a year that were coming into the shelter. And the problem with those is that there, a lot of shelters won't even waste a parvo test on them, quote unquote, because they look like they have parvo. And so they potentially could be spreading it even if the parvo test is negative. So, a lot of times that's a bigger group than just the ones that are actually positive. Back then, the shelter would euthanize the puppies in the next kennel next to them on either side because there was an assumption that they would have contaminated that far out, even if those were healthy at the time. So we created a parvo ward, which was a lot like a veterinary hospital where you just treat them, bring them in and put them in isolation, treat them, and then get them out. We created a ringworm ward, which is basically the same thing for cats with ringworms. And then we set up our medical team to be ready for emergency intake all the time so hit by cars that were coming in and being immediately euthanized at the shelter would just come to us right after they had their intake at the city shelter so we were able to create these interventions that allowed us to start cutting down that number that was being killed until it was really small and we really tried to use data every step of the way and make sure that the actions we were taking were creating that measurable difference in the live release rate rather than duplicating efforts of any other rescue group in town or taking animals off the streets. There's a lot of push to do that. But our goal was to make the city shelter a no-kill shelter, which then by extension makes the whole city a no-kill shelter because that's where that's the only place that animals would be unnecessarily euthanized in.
0: I love what you're saying too. It's like you were looking at the problem and you really were like pulling data and finding like data centered solutions that were making a big impact on your specific community. Cause I would imagine, I mean, a lot of what you mentioned, I think is nationwide and and certainly affects every shelter, but there were probably like problems that you were facing that maybe another city wouldn't be facing that
1: exact problem, but you're literally looking at your animals. I love that. It's the little things too. Like When you were talking about the parvo puppies and how they would potentially euthanize the ones next to it, I was like, just like had to take a moment and just listening to that. It's, it was just unnecessary killing. It's something as simple as creating an isolation ward or somewhere to put those potentially contam I don't want to say contaminated or contagious animals so that you're not having to unnecessarily kill surrounding pets. If something as simple as that saves, I bet it saved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lives over the past years.
2: Definitely. We've had so many puppies come in that just had terrible worms and it looked a lot like Parvo. And to think, you know, that they'd be euthanized and then the ones next to them would be euthanized when it was just a simple like 50 cent dewormer that solves the problem. So yeah, that's what I mean is I don't think people really understand what's happening in shelters. And, And I don't mean all shelters. This is really isolated to generally the government funded shelters because of the funding that is associated with their programming. And it's just something that needs to
0: change. Absolutely. I think that's so true. I think there is this idea of like when you find an animal, whether they are injured or whatever it is, that's what you do. You bring it to the shelter. I think there's that mentality, and that makes you a good person and it makes you a good Samaritan because you helped that animal in your head. But I think there are so many people who don't realize that most shelters don't have medical facilities and they can't care for these animals that have these issues. And a lot of times they are going to be sitting in that shelter on borrowed time. So I love that you just like fueled up your vet staff. (laughs) It sounds like.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I know. So we were very veterinary heavy at the beginning, which was mostly me at the very beginning. And then luckily we started to raise enough money to be able to hire vets and have more support, which has been fabulous. We have really, really good vets on our team. And they get while we're here. They get that we need to do things on a shoestring budget and that the lives are the most important piece of this. So I feel very fortunate on that in that regard.
0: Well, so it's funny you say that because your team actually mentioned to us that you are great at budgeting, that you are (laughs) like very thrifty and you do a lot. You make a lot out of a little budget. So I'm wondering for our rescues who are listening, I'm wondering if you have any like hot tips that you feel like you've acquired over the years that really help?
2: Well, yeah, I don't know where I got that trait, but I am absolutely <laughs> fixated on trying to save money because we are we have, to put it in perspective, Austin Pets Alive saves 13,000 animals a year. But in Texas, Texas is killing 150,000 a year. So we have a lot of work to do. and And there's two different mindsets. The one mindset is you make your life better. You make your staff life better at which everybody should do to a certain extent, make your facility better, make your everything better. The more you get, you just keep making better, but not necessarily changing the structure of what you're doing or the number of animals you're helping. And we tend to be a more on the other side where the more we have, the more animals we want to save. In order to do that, you have to be trying to penny pinch along the way. Otherwise it gets away from you. And especially as we've grown, it is hard. It's really hard to hire, like you bring somebody in new who wasn't here at the beginning when you would have months where you're actually out of money and try to instill that number crunching in them is is difficult, but it's about, you know, when you're ordering supplies, calling and instead of ordering what you've always ordered every month, like in vaccines, asking which is the cheapest vaccine and getting that one because they get they change every month. And so there's little things like that. It's asking for donations from your community. We ask for used medications and we use them. We use expired medications and of course under the under state law where we own our animals and can treat them accordingly medically, then we're we're able to do that. There's things like using for a while, we wouldn't even buy toilet paper. It would be donated. Like everything is donated, trying to just ask the community to help because they want to help. So why not just tell them, here's all the things we have to buy. If you donate them, then we don't have to buy them, which saves more anim- more money to go to the animal. So yeah, I know people really hate it, but it's important. And creating those, pra- those protocols so that it can be passed down, even when you're not in the height of urgency to save money, everybody in the organization should know how to save money and not just spend, spend, spend. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. I mean, I always make jokes too. I feel like that's like the mentality of so many rescuers. Like if you give a rescuer a dollar, they are going to do eight different things with that dollar. Whereas everyone else is like, oh, it's just a dollar. <laughs> yeah. And certainly I mean, I think when COVID hit for us, I mean, we saw a bunch of our rescues that were like, hi, can you get us toilet paper? <laughs> and we're like, all right, well, let's figure it out. We Yeah. <laughs> No, I think that's so wonderful. I love what you're saying too, about like instilling that mentality, even when you are like, when you have a big influx of donations Mm -hmm. or or you're set up, it's like always preparing for some sort of like drought of that. Cause you never know what's going to happen. Certainly not in animal welfare. I feel like that's something that we've seen and we've seen, that's why there, (laughs) there are so many animal rescues that are thriving during COVID. Cause they're like, this is just another day for us. Like we're used to adapting.
2: Yeah, I know that's been really um, inspiring. I think to see the ones that just are making the most of it.
0: <laughs> with your experience. I mean, you've, it sounds like you, you've done so many innovative programs. You've worked with animals one-on-one doing a lot of this vet work. And I think a lot of organizations will interpret this a little bit differently. So I'm wondering what to you is like a successful I guess we'll start with like what has made successes happen in your organization? What what would you attribute all your, not all your success to, (laughs) but some of your success to?
2: I think that a lot of it has to do with the people. Clearly, there's so many people that are helping in so many ways here in Austin that are both on staff and not on staff, volunteers and people in our community that are making big things happen, happen. And I think that part of it My guess, and I might be completely wrong on this, but my guess is that in every city, those people exist. It's just a matter of being able to say yes to them and give them the power to make change in some way for the better. And that is harder the bigger you become as an organization, but because there's more rules and more protocols and more hierarchy. But I think that that really is the secret sauce of what allowed all of our different programs to kind of take off at the same time is saying, okay, you guys got Bottle Baby, you, you go figure it out. And then they just made them, I mean, they took it and ran with it. And same with Parvo, Ringworm. I mean, it was across the board. There was just leaders that emerged and people who wanted to help in unique ways. And we were able to say yes to those opportunities which is hard because sometimes it's a real pain in the neck to do something that isn't part of your normal routine and to accommodate that. But I think the dividends are really high if you can be open to new ideas and be open to new ways of doing things and people's big dreams and trying to say, yeah, let's make it happen. I think So I think that's a lot of it.
0: That's so interesting that you say that because I feel like it almost sounds like, and I think this is going to scare a lot of organizations. It's like, you're giving up a little of that control. And I know when we spoke with Soy Dog Foundation, that's what he was saying. He was like, there's like the founder syndrome where you want to manage so much and it becomes like part of your persona. And so you need to control everything. But it sounds like what you're saying is like, no, like empower these people to like grow on their own and follow the path that that they're most passionate about.
2: Yeah. And I think the hardest part for me, as we've gotten bigger, it's just creating boundaries or guardrails. So it's like, go down that path, but, and here's your wide guardrails of, you know, try to stay in this lane at least.
0: (laughs) Right. No, that's, I think that's super important too, because certainly you don't want someone who's like all of a sudden, like we're a hundred percent turtle rescue now.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Or, or changing. I mean, I think what we see a lot of is moving, trying to move more and more towards the normal, the less risk tolerant taking of animals. And that's sort of where it drifts. And so you do have to have guardrails um, in place where it's like there's basic tenants to the work that we're doing. And how do we keep those enforced and prominent? Have everybody help understand what that really means.
0: Absolutely. That's so important. So with all these projects in place. And I mean, obviously, Haas underway. How has COVID been for your organization generally? I mean, we've, we've been asking people and we've seen a bit of a trend, but I feel like it does vary a little bit.
2: Well, I, there's no question that it was hard and scary. You know, we've had to completely change our operations to, to be not on site, um, not to have very many people on site, not be open to the public, uh, do everything remotely. But I think that the teams all really rose to the occasion and did a ton of work to try to make sure that that was successful. They adapted really quickly to the remote adoptions and foster placement and the drive-through dog and dash foster placements and trying to create more marketing online so that animals could be placed remotely. So there was just a lot of work that, that happened that I think made it so that we didn't really fall down too much. We were able to uh, kind of pivot and (laughs) regroup and figure out a new way forward. We're still trying to figure out how we do more HOS programming in Austin. We haven't quite figured that out, but we are working on it and trying to create those pathways here and also save all the animals that are in Austin and also help a lot of Texas. I think part of what COVID really opened our eyes to is the plight of so many shelters across Texas that are really struggling and maybe weren't quite so fortunate to have people stick by them and donors stick by them and fosters come forward. And so maybe are at a bigger, a larger place of having to euthanize more animals again. And so we're trying to, trying to help them. So anyway, yeah, we've, we've done a lot in COVID, thankfully, because people have been very supportive. And I really attribute that to our, our marketing team to help get the message out about what we need help with and what we're trying to accomplish and how this is affecting us. And and so people can help because if they don't know about it, then they can't help.
0: That's such an important point. I feel like there are so many organizations out there that I think they are they don't want to ask for help because they feel like they're asking for a handout. And I think that's such a heartbreaking thing because it's like there are so many people that would love to help. And if only they knew about the opportunity, it's, they don't feel like they're handing out charity. It's really enriching their lives so much as well. Yeah. Do you have personal pets at home?
2: (laughs) I do have personal pets. I have four dogs and one bird right now. That's it. That's down from five dogs and five cats and two birds, but we're trying to not be too crazy and overloaded at home because we live in a small house. But our four dogs we have four three distemper survivors and one dog that was just really scared of people she's better now but she was almost untouchable for about a year. oh my gosh and we just decided to keep her Wow yeah so she's really sweet and they're all really sweet but the post distemper dogs were really severe cases of distemper and very disabled as a as a result and so we figured they'd probably Probably aren't going to find. I mean, owners that are our vets and can take care of all their medical needs for the rest of their lives. So we ended up keeping them, and that has limited our ability to foster or take in more animals because it's a lot.
0: Wow, that's so amazing! And you have like a little crew of them too. (laughs) That's (laughs) astounding. Well, so we have kind kind of some fun questions. Okay, and you can apply this to any or all of your animals at home, but what is the naughtiest thing they've done?
2: Oh, goodness. (laughs) There's so many things. I'm trying to think of recent encounters. I have one of my distemper survivors is, his name's Bullfrog, and he couldn't open his mouth for two years. And so he could only open it just like, I don't know, half inch. And he could get his tongue out and eat food and drink water and stuff, but he couldn't really do much with it. And he was this little tiny puppy when I started fostering him and he had parvo with his littermates died and they actually had distemper, but they also had parvo. But so he was really, really in bad shape. It took him about a year to be able to start walking with his front legs. He would just walk with his back legs and kind of little barrel around. And when he started walking, he started walking more and actually running. He started chasing people and he would run into them with his mouth, but he couldn't open his mouth. So we weren't, we were like, Oh, he wants to say hi to you. And then slowly started to be able to open his mouth. And now he bites people on a regular basis because he's so cute and little and people let their guard down around him. Even after we give them every warning in the book. Yeah. So that's pretty naughty. (laughs) Luckily it doesn't hurt because he doesn't have very many teeth, but it's still very insulting to people.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's something Sydney and I talk about all the time. We feel like everyone who has a big dog, it's like they are the most well trained large dog you've ever seen because they know they can't act out. But every little dog <laughs> is like a wild thing. Yeah. Yeah. We were just talking to another rescue and they were saying that they'll come home and their little Yorkie will be just sitting on their countertop. Like it's just, and it's like a great Dane would not get away with that. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So um, we have to ask, because this is something else we are kind of prompted by your team about, who has a better diet, you or your animals?
2: <laughs> definitely my animals.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were telling us that you, although you're vegetarian, you don't like vegetables. That's true.
2: I definitely, I prefer to call myself a non-meatitarian because I don't necessarily eat vegetables. I try, I have really tried it. I mean, I recognize that it's a problem. If I want to live longer, I probably need to eat better. But yeah, I tend to have the plate that's full of yellow foods, you know, like mac and cheese and yes. potato and <laughs> so. all the good stuff. I know all the good stuff. So I am trying though. And there's some foods that aren't terrible, like spinach and edamame. I'm eating a lot of that to try to fill in some blanks. <laughs> But yes, and so I've often said that if they would make a human chow, like they have dog food and bird food, I would eat that. I would be fine with that. (laughs) Like bland food that has everything I need in it would be great.
0: Like sneaking it in (laughs) there. Like, (laughs) I'm sure one of these days it's going to happen for sure. They're going to be like, it's all your nutrients. Go for it. Yeah, seriously. Well, so our last one's a little bit uh, harder. So, Is there one life motto that you live by?
2: I have a lot of them. There's one on my computer that I like to reference a lot that is failure is not defeat until you stop trying, which I really love because there's so many setbacks that occur when you're trying to make big changes within our industry. And certainly I have felt those over, over my years doing this and there's lots of things you're going to get wrong and maybe really big things that you're going to get wrong but if you give up when those things happen then that's 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 kind of your legacy that's what you've done to impact the field but if you learn from that and you try to do better the next time and create better change then you know there's basically no end in sight and you can keep improving the system and making it better so i definitely live by that and and like i said i have it actually on my computer frame The only thing on the computer frame. Because I think it's really important to keep remembering.
0: That is so important. I mean, I love that too, because it's almost like a very hopeful thing to think about. Like even if you're failing, like you feel so bad about it. It's like as long as you continue on, like it's not a real failure. It's a learning experience. Or yep. That's so helpful. And I think it's certainly gonna be so helpful to so many animal rescues out there who, I mean, it's kind of a an industry of losses and wins, and I think those losses are felt so much harder sometimes than a lot of things. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, this was so wonderful chatting with you, and we're so excited to be part of the Haas program and to
2: see how it evolves. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.
0: Dr. Ellen Jefferson truly is such an inspiration to so many people in animal welfare not just our team, but so many other shelters and rescues are learning by her example. And it's amazing to see the impact that American Pets Alive and Austin Pets Alive are making in the community. If you want to learn a little bit more about what they're doing, you can check our show notes or our blog.
1: And as always, remember to rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow Cuddly on all social media accounts at We Love Cuddly. That's C-U-D-D-L-Y. Thanks guys.